Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the History of England, episode 307, All Around the World. I still have more podcasts to recommend to you all. Seriously, I've been doing a lot of lying around, eating bonbons and dreaming of far, far away. This week, a shout-out for Paul Carenza and his British Broadcasting Century, a podcast about 100 years of BBC and radio. Paul is also a comedian and is a congenial and upbeat presenter. The story itself, of course, is a fascinating one. It's amazing how relatively recent has been the explosion of media and communication. The podcast uses a liberal amount of rarely heard clips from Broadcasting's Golden Era as well. I think you'll enjoy it. So, that's British Broadcasting Century, available at all good podcatchers and also at bbccentury.podbean.com. Last week then, we met Francis on his way to Pheasants Bay from Plymouth with just two ships, and as it happens, two of his brothers, John and Joseph Drake. By July 1572 they arrived to find a warning note from a fellow Englishman, John Garrett, warning them that they'd been rumbled, that the Spanish knew all about their little hideout. This worried Drake not one bit, and he stayed exactly where he was, setting up camp and having his men build three pinnaces from their supplies. Before long, they were joined by another English raider, James Raunce, whose crew joined Drake's venture for a while. He brought with him, James Raunce that is, two prizes, and here we get yet another type of ship for me to tell you about. The ship is called a shallop, a small sailing ship designed for war. Rounds also bought a larger Spanish vessel. So this was Drake, for a while, reinforced. Now, I promised faithfully I would not treat you like the 12-year-old me and overburden you with the finer details of Drake's daring do. So, we'll summarise. Drake was waiting for the right time to attack his big prize and objective of the visit, Nombre de Dios. But you know, the devil finds work for idle fingers so raiding ensued, including the taking of two further Spanish ships. Part of the cargo were several black slaves, who assured Drake that the people of Nombre de Dios were in a right old panic about the Cimarrones, the escaped black slaves who lived in the Isthmus, furious for revenge on their previous Spanish tormentors. The town, therefore, was preparing their defences. Drake freed the enslaved Africans, as was his wont, Meanwhile, though, his men were spooked by the information and wanted to back out from the attack. So, a lesser man than Drake might well have given up at this point and gone raiding in other directions, but such was not his way. Again, he ignored the warnings and stuck to his path and carried his men with him. 
Drake's raiding party on Nombre de Dios numbered just 73 men, a pitiful number with which to attack one of the central entrepots on the treasure route. As they marched into town, the church bells pealed in alarm and terror and the tiny English contingent beat drums and blew on trumpets, making themselves as big and as terrifying as they possibly could. At the other end of the square, they met the armed town's militia, which fired a volley before the English charged them. As they joined battle, John Drake's contingent charged in from another direction in a proper old strop, and the Spaniards decided now would be a good time to find somewhere else to be. The town belonged to Drake. For a short while, it seemed that Drake's boat had come in, for there, in the governor's house, was a fortune, as was reported, a pile of silver of, as near as we could guess, 70 foot in length, of 10 foot in breadth, and 12 foot in height, piled up against the wall. But in who wants to be a millionaire fashion, Drake didn't want to take just that yet. First, he wanted to check out the town treasury. Off they went to try and break the door down, which proved tough and time-consuming. At this point, Drake fainted and collapsed, trailing blood from his leg. He'd been wounded during the fight with the militia, but decided to ignore it and carry on. Now thoroughly spooked, Drake's men decided their captain was more important than the Governor Silver, and they beat a hasty retreat back to the ships, worried that if Drake died, they wouldn't be able to get their way home. So the attack, just when seemingly crowned with success and glory, had turned to ashes. As far as the Spaniards were concerned, the attack was a horrible shock, but probably not that bloody. A contemporary Portuguese report claimed that just one Spaniard died, a number which grew during the following compensation claims by the Spanish, just like the proverbial fisherman's tale, until it numbered 75. As the English nursed their wounds, there's a nice exchange, rather reminiscent of things like, I don't know, the Richard and Saladin stories. The Spanish captain sent a messenger asking if he was the same Drake as terrorised them last year, and did he poison his arrows? Many of the English, by the way, still favoured their bows over guns. The letter ended by asking if Drake would like the Spanish to supply them with anything they needed. Drake, of course, said, no, 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 we're fine, overloaded with good things. At which point his men, no doubt, stifled incredulous objections. Drake loaded the Spanish messenger up with gifts and sent him back into the town. By such acts did Drake win his reputation. The design on Nombre de Dios, though, was now a busted flush. It was reinforced with men and artillery and a new earthwork hastily constructed. James Rawns threw up his halyards and abandoned Drake for seas anew. It's at this point, ships floating uncertainly outside the town, that Diego enters Drake's story. Diego was probably an escaped black African slave held at Nombre de Dios, the memoirs of a preacher with the expedition recorded. One Diego, a Negro, came and called to our pinnaces to know whether they were Captain Drake's, and upon answer received, continued entreating to be taken on board, though he had first three or four shot made at him until at length they fetched him. Diego would prove an essential aid to Drake, 
and a long-term and close companion. In the short term, he helped the Englishmen build new shelters as they withdrew from Nombre de Dios. Drake, meanwhile, tried to keep momentum going by launching a raid on Cartagena, and he cut out a 250-ton ship with his tiny pinnaces. But most of the valuable prizes lay safely under the guns of the town, warned by recent events. Drake and his company stared into the mouth of the monster of failure. It was Diego who provided the solution, talking of the Cimarrones and the potential to ally with them. He was duly sent with John Drake to make contact with them while Drake planned for a new venture, to attack the mule trains from Panama to Nombre de Dios. Drake is often accused of being something of a seat-of-the-pants sort of bloke, but here he was clearly planning ahead, planning hidden caches of supplies for the aftermath of any attack. By the 14th of September 1572, Drake and the leader of the Cimarrones had met and parted on the good ship Pasha, and the alliance was sealed. The Spanish recognised the danger. This league between the English and the Negroes is very detrimental to this kingdom, because so thoroughly acquainted with the region and so expert in the bush, the Negroes will show their methods and means to accomplish any evil design they may wish to carry out and execute. The partnership was very important to Drake and grew stronger the closer they worked together. Drake spoke of the Cimarrones with affection and respect all his life, so one of his sailors later to remark to a Spaniard that those Negroes were the brothers of Captain Francis, who loved them dearly. Through the winter, Drake's raids continued, but by January 1573, his expedition had suffered further disaster. Both John Drake and Joseph Drake had died from wounds and plague and over 40% of the Plymouth seamen had died of a disease called Yellow Jack. But in the midst of his misery, Cimarron's scouts arrived in camp to report that the flotter had arrived, and mule trains were duly starting their torturous journey across the isthmus from Panama. In February 1573, for two weeks, 48 men fought their way through the countryside, 30 Cimarrons and 18 Englishmen, and eventually they set an ambush and awaited the mule train. But disappointment had one more hook to fling. A lone Spanish rider came upon one Robert Pike, and despite Drake shouting, Don't tell him, Pike! raised the alarm, and most of the mule train returned to Panama. The name of Private Pike was presumably Mud. Drake didn't, of course, shout anything. That was just a dad's army reference. Sorry for that. Nonetheless, Drake persisted further, continuing to raid with the Cimarrons, until in March he by chance hooked up with another French raider, one Guillaume Le Testu, and a new party joined the alliance thereby. Once again, a return to the original plan was called for, and an ambush on the mule train at a different place. On the 1st of April, the Cimarrons reported a train of 200 mules with 45 soldiers on its way. And now at last, the ambush met with success. The Spaniards were driven off with but two wounded amongst the Corsairs, including Le Testu, it has to be said. The mule train yielded 200,000 gold pesos, far more than the raiders could carry, but 100 
8,000 pesos made it back to the ships and the rest was hidden. More drama awaited though. Really, so much to tell about all this, it's almost impossible to tell the tale in one episode. Anyway, I am trying. With the Spaniards in pursuit, Drake appeared at the coast to rendezvous with the rest of his ships and men. To find his ships, nowhere to be seen, replaced instead by seven Spanish shallops. Uek. Now I might have cried at this point, but not Drake. He had a raft constructed, and together with a small group, set off through the surf under the Spanish guns to find his pinnaces, which he duly managed to do. In the phrase much to be loved of the outraged political commentators on Twitter, you just couldn't make this up. One more venture remained. As the pursuit dived down, the English returned to try and dig up the treasure that they'd buried. They found very little of it, actually, and found that Le Testu had been discovered, his head removed by the Spanish and placed on a spike outside the town. But now at last, Drake turned for home. It's quite a story, obviously. It's reasonably difficult to argue that Drake was not here at the height of piracy. While this was going on, his queen, for example, was trying to patch things up with Philip II. Drake's defence would be twofold. One, of vengeance against the Spanish for their treachery and the death of his compatriots at San Juan de Ulea, and the cause of Protestantism. Whether you accept this defence, of course, is up to you but it is at very best a private war, unsanctioned by his government. On the 9th of August 1573, the preacher at St Andrew's Church in Plymouth noticed that he was losing the attention of his audience. Whispers seemed to be spreading through the congregation. Heads were turning away from him. And then, to his outrage, they started leaving the church, streaming down to the harbour. Because Drake had returned. And when all the divvying up was done, Drake's take of the treasure was £20,000 and his status and position and that of Mary Drake were transformed. For the next few years, Drake drops from sight for long periods. All we see of him really is his ferryman's role in the Rattlin Island massacre. Part of the reason for the silence is that Elizabeth was at this point squishing many ideas for exploration, or at least those that risked Spanish fury. In 1575, Philip had agreed that English ships could trade freely at Spanish ports in the Netherlands once more, and she didn't want to mess that up. Around this time, adventurers like Richard Grenville had been pitching plans to go south, to and through the Magellan Straits into the Pacific. Elizabeth nixed the ideas at the time for fear of upsetting Philip. Drake was now a man recognised by the powerful. The idea of bursting into the Pacific was of great interest to the more aggressive privy councillors like Walsingham and Leicester. How Drake's next and maybe greatest project was hatched may derive from conversations between Walsingham and Drake, building on those ideas pitched by Grenville originally. Drake's own memory was of being put in front of the Queen herself. The lowly son of a yeoman had reached the fairy at the top of the greasy Christmas tree, just to mix my metaphors. Drake's Queen looked at him and said, Drake, so it is that I would gladly be revenged on the King of Spain for divers injuries I have received. She then threw a bit of flattery his way that 
He was the only man that might do this exploit, and withal craved his advice therein. Nothing daunted by his queen, Drake did indeed give the boss his honest opinion that small good was to be done in Spain, but the only way was to annoy him by his indies. A line which sounds vaguely carry-on queenie somehow, to annoy him by his indies, but I'm assured that's how they spoke back then. The conversation was interesting because in the marching orders that follow from the Queen, there was, of course, no mention whatsoever of annoying Philip by his indies or indeed by his outies. It was all about exploration and discovery and trade. But the assumption was that there'd be plunder plenty along the way. And Elizabeth was already well aware that this was a deep water project, not more of the same at all. This was about discovery. On this trip, though, Drake would certainly qualify as a privateer rather than a pirate, and sponsored this time by the highest in the land, in fact. Now, Queenie was also probably guilty of flattery when she said Drake was the only man who might do this exploit, for Elizabeth was a clever manager of the men around her, and make no mistake about that. But for this planned foray into the deep blue sea, well, she was probably speaking nothing but the truth. It would seem logical for the originator of the idea, Richard Grenville, to be asked back. But Grenville, though madly brave and stiff-necked, was no mariner. Drake had proved his chops already. I'm going to pile more on you about this point, because I believe this is one of those occasions when to appreciate the wild, mad courage of the Elizabethan seafarers, a bit of effort is required. Three years back, my mate Pat took me out on a yacht. We did have a lovely time sailing over to the Isle of Wight, although it was November, so, you know, my other pal Charlie was not lying on the prow in a bikini and suntan oil this time round. But as I held the tiller, I kept my eye on a computer, which showed my direction, all manner of positional and meteorological data, and all the positions and trajectories of ships around me. The experience was a long way from the Elizabethan experience. First, there's the lack of knowledge about the world, the layout of which, while less bonkers than that of the Hereford Mappamundi of the 14th century, was still relatively nutty. Specifically, here's a thing. There is a lot of talk, and indeed obsession, about the Straits of Magellan, a most treacherous passage from the Atlantic into the Pacific. Mariners took their lives in their hands just saying the name, a bit like saying Voldemort. And yet, a perfectly decent passage was to be had simply by going a bit further south, round Cape Horn. So why didn't seafarers choose the safe approach? The reason was, they were convinced that the continent was attached to a massive Antarctic continent, and that there was no Cape Horn, there was no way round the bottom. So, through the straits they went, life in hands. The vast majority of sailors in the 16th century and before, of course, had the kind of coastal training that Drake had gained in the days of his youth. The problem was to make sure you didn't fall foul of shoals, currents, lee shores, that kind of thing. There were pilots available to help you into port. Rutters, written pilots' books, were used to help navigate new areas by pointing out local coastal features to take note of. 
absolutely none of that was available sailing in the new world where charts were partial and reliable or non-existent. So if you found land, you spend a lot of time swinging in the lead, literally chucking your weight into the sea to see the depth below you, pulling it up and examining the deposit on it to help see what dangers lay below and how deep. You might be on the point of telling the master that it was fearful, shallow and rocky, just as the crunch sounded from the unseen shoal. Not only did you venture into uncharted or poorly charted territory, finding where you were in the deep blue sea with no land around was very difficult indeed. There were devices now to help with latitude, quadrants sighted on the sun, for example, or cross staffs and compasses. Even these were terrifically inaccurate, though. Try taking an accurate reading on a pitching deck or on a cloudy day. No one was able to cope with true north and magnetic north, so there was a built-in inaccuracy anyway. But direction was probably the easiest. But there was no way to calculate longitude. So how did you know where you were? Well, dead reckoning, basically based on calculations of speeds, which by the late 16th century were based on knots. So you dumped a chip log over the back of the ship with a line attached with knots tied into it. The number of knots that went through your fingers in 28 seconds was how fast you were going. OK, so dead reckoning then. So, named due to the likelihood of that being the outcome. I'm guessing we've come in this direction at this speed, so that means we've come this far. OK, Skipper? So we're fine. Nowhere near any reefs or shoals. Crunch. One more thing about this exploring malarkey. I suspect these days that the sympathy is very much with the native populations that would have to deal all over the globe with some pretty horrendous consequences of globalisation in terms of disease, murder and enslavement, and view encounters through that lens, which is fair enough. But in doing that, we should not forget that on an individual level, every encounter between unknown local inhabitant and new arrival was fraught with danger and potential for misunderstanding on both sides. Mariners were often thousands of miles from home, in potentially hostile territory, a long way from safe havens. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So, how am I going to get a shifty on here then? I'm going to summarise heavily Drake's possibly finest achievement, his circumnavigation of the globe. Summarise it horribly. Drake's subtle fleet was composed of five ships, including the Pelican, the building of which he oversaw himself. It is absolutely titchy, 80 tonnes, and you can go and see a replica of this most famous ship in Southwark, which became, of course, the Golden Hind. I have stood looking at it many times, and utterly beautiful she is. Never actually been on it, mea culpa. The total number of sailors on the fleet that set sail 
was 160 men, with a very wide range, from gentlemen in the form of the doubters to all the professions, including preachers as well as the more practical stuff. And, of course, Drake's personal manservant, Diego, now resident in England. Off they set from Plymouth on the 13th of December 1577 in full secrecy, south to West Africa, with the first thrill of violence in capturing some Spanish and Portuguese fishing vessels in the Canaries and picking up a pilot, Nuno da Silva, which was probably worth all the rest. Then, further south to cross the line in February 1578, after 60 days of travelling, reaching the coast of Brazil at the start of April. Down the coast they crawled, comparing and improving charts as they went. As they went, a boil was swelling in the fleet, a boil with the name Thomas Doughty swimming in its pussy heart, and a series of disputes and irritations with accusations of Doughty's arrogance and light-fingeredness. As a gentleman, Doughty clearly saw himself as due privileges and even claimed to be Burley's agent. Drake demoted him to the tiny flyboat, the Swan, and this did not help Doughty's mood. More later. As they worked their way south, there are example of Drake's style and approach with the Native Americans they met, but also the dangers thereof. Drake's desire was to show to the tribes they met that dealing with the English was so much better than dealing with Spaniards or Portuguese or French. They'd make contact by leaving gifts on the coast and waiting for people to appear, and then they'd take the relationship from there. The golden rule, in the words of a mariner, Edward Cliff, was that Drake would suffer no man to hurt any of them. Nonetheless, not all the encounters were happy and it's very difficult to get inside the heads of the people they met from this distance and lack of evidence. So, just north of the Magellan Straits, at an encounter on one beach, one Thomas Winter, demonstrating a bow, broke a string and apparently with the idea that the English were defenceless, the locals attacked. Two English were killed and one local. Of course, we only have the English accounts what really sparked this violence? How did the native Indians really view these um, visitors? I doubt we'll ever really know, but it reinforces the point that even with the collaborative approach that Drake took with them, the potential for violence and misunderstanding was always present. By this time, the violence within the expedition also came to the fore. The quarrel between Drake and Thomas Doughty reached an impasse where Drake accused Doughty of treason and fostering mutiny, which was hotly denied. One of the captains of the fleet, Winter, promised to keep Doughty safe and under guard, but Drake would not let it pass this time, and he convened a court and a jury from the crew. Doughty was duly condemned, protesting the legality of the court. But once judgment of death had been agreed by the crew, Everything went very Elizabethan. Doughty and Drake shared a last supper together. They prayed together. Doughty declared Drake his good captain. And then Doughty knelt and had his head cut off. Seriously, the past is a foreign country and sometimes it's tempting to suppose that every member of the early modern world was as mad as a box of cheese. Interpretations of the affair have varied. 
Some have seen it as proof of Drake's arrogance and high-handedness, others of his hatred of hierarchy. But essentially it looks as though Doughty adapted poorly to the egalitarian life of the sea and Drake could not tolerate his insubordination and he simply had to go to preserve the health of the mission. As Elizabeth herself remarked, there can be only one master. Drake at this point made a speech to all his men, interrupting the regular and ubiquitous religious service, explaining his actions, and he did that, if anyone wants to leave now, they can, sort of thing. But such was his charisma that all refused the proffered ship, and into the Magellan Straits they sailed, and renamed the pelican the Golden Hind as they did so. They made it through the Straits in 14 days, apparently very fast indeed, but almost immediately two of the customary dangers came home to roost. Firstly, such little information as they had suggested the coast was towards their northwest. Of course, as you'll know from your geography, it's north. Secondly, a massive storm hit them and they were anyway driven southwards and the ship, the Marigold and all 29 of her sailors were lost. Of course, reassembling in a sea no one knew was hard at the best of times and at this point the captain of the ship, the Elizabeth, gave up anyway and turned for home into the Atlantic. As they sailed northwards along the coast, Drake realised that this massive southern continent had been a myth and started a happy process of claiming any land that looked unoccupied as the possession of his queen, quite beyond the ability of his queen to enforce, of course, and which, it goes without saying, involved no discussion at all with the locals. Encounters with the native peoples continued, usually peacefully, but on the odd occasion with some disastrous results, as one incident when two English men were killed probably by the Araucanians, who were continuing to fiercely resist the Spanish conquistadores, incidentally. When the boat carrying the remaining English reached the safety of the ship, Drake was urged to turn his culverins on the Araucanians, but he refused. We might have taken a revenge upon them at pleasure with our great shot out of our ship, but the general would not, for special causes, consent to it. From here, Drake returned to pillage, at the beginning of this, the Spanish had no idea of the violence that was going to fall on them. They had no enemies in the Pacific and did not expect Drake, allowing him to ransack totally unprepared towns like Valparaiso, for example. Things got harder for Drake as news spread, and Drake often found treasure hidden by the time he arrived in a town. But Paydirt was hit with the capture of the treasure ship Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, completely unarmed and containing treasure to the tune of £126,000. It was a massive haul. Throughout, descriptions survive of Drake, and there are positive aspects in the story that emerges. OK, fair dues. So the Spaniards were being robbed blind, and without doubt they didn't buy the privateer story. But the reports emphasised Drake's humanity. None of his prisoners were killed, the captains were treated with respect... Frequently, his prisoners were given gifts as they were then freed. OK, the gifts might well have been stuff that he'd stolen, but compared to the routine brutality the Spanish had inflicted in the New World, the English had inflicted in Ireland, French pirates in the Caribbean, Drake impressed all with his approach. 
That's not to say that he was clear of brutality of his own. When crossed, he could be hard indeed. One Spaniard he suspected of hiding information was hauled off his feet by his neck with a rope to make him talk. Even here, though, Jerome survived the experience. Writers also attested to Drake's popularity with his own men. I endeavoured to find out if the general was well-beloved, and everybody told me they adored him, wrote one. By April 1579, Drake was determined to turn for home. His plan was to reach the Atlantic by the fabled Northwest Passage, the so-called Strait of Anian. If that failed, rather than return the way that he'd come, he'd head west and try to circumnavigate, something he figured, correctly, that his Spanish pursuers would never guess that he'd attempt. By June, he'd got as far north as he dared, just south of the modern Canadian border, and at least ascertained that the Strait of Anian, if it existed, was not where it was said it to be. Before attempting to cross the Pacific, Drake needed to careen his ships, and he sailed back south, possibly as far as the 38th parallel, and there he stopped. Searches aplenty have gone on to find the spot, to no avail. Maybe San Francisco Bay. But wherever it was, Drake and his men met the Miwok there, and not just the tribesmen, but their chief. On the basis of that meeting, Drake claimed that he'd been granted lordship of the Miwok and claimed the land as Novo Albion. Sailing westwards, Drake managed to trade at the Moluccas. In December 1579, an incident occurred for which Drake has been roundly condemned by Miranda Kaufman in particular. Two black Africans and a pregnant woman called Maria were left at a place called Crab Island. They were left with food, and the interpretation is difficult. So one view is that for the group to have been deserted on the basis of race seems right out of character given all we know about Drake and how he dealt with people. And if he'd been worried about the amount of food they had left, why had he not left them earlier back at Nova Albion? On the other hand, the thought of three people decided they wanted off on a remote island in the Pacific also seems a little bit unlikely. By March... Drake had reached Java, and by May, the East African coast. By now we know that Diego, his friend and manservant, was probably dead also. We do not know how, but we know he was still alive at least in November 1579. He appears to have died near the Moluccas at some point. Then it was a matter of sailing round the Cape of Good Hope and up the western coast of Africa. So, it's September the 26th, 1580, and we are in the Channel near Plymouth. Some fishermen, as was their habit, were working their nets when they spotted a ship in the distance coming towards them, riding low in the water and therefore clearly heavily laden. The ship approached them. Without any outward suggestion of threat, and one of their number indicated to the fishermen that they wanted information from them. The question when it came was a strange one. Not... Where the devil are we, and what is that strange accent you're using, or anything like that, but is good Queen Elizabeth still alive? The fisherman said yes, she lived still, and realised that the ship they saw, called the Golden Hind, was in fact the Pelican, returned at last, though all alone. In the port of Plymouth, though, everyone was nervous and no one could relax. There was plague in Plymouth, 
so Drake and his sailors stayed aboard and only received a few visitors, Mary Drake among them. But it was not just plague that held them back. News of Drake's voyage had filtered back continually during their absence. The Portuguese and the Spanish were besieging the English court, telling tales of devastation, which had often been through the fisherman's tale process, demanding reparation from Elizabeth. And Elizabeth had a tricky decision to make. With the acquisition of the Portuguese crown and with the Spanish victories in the Netherlands delivered by the Duke of Parma, Philip's power was even more awesome than it had been before. Surely this was time for the queen of a small damp island to carry favour to survive, turn Drake over to Philip like a sacrificial goat and hand the treasure back. After all, it would be a good deal cheaper than an international war and probable defeat. Her chief minister, Burley, was sternly telling her that the treasure should be locked up, as should Drake, and the ill-gotten gains return to their rightful owners, or at least to the Spanish and Portuguese. But Hatton, Leicester, Walsingham, and all the investors, Mark were saying precisely the opposite. Also fresh in Elizabeth's mind would have been the Spanish intervention in Ireland at Smerwick, landing Spanish-recruited soldiers within her kingdom to foment rebellion by her subjects. London, meanwhile, was humming with excitement like a disturbed bee's nest. Elizabeth called a privy council and consulted with the great and the good. The Golden Hind fretted. Drake and his fellow seamen would have been well aware of the dilemma their queen faced. It was a difficult time, a difficult time. If there had been psychiatrist couches in the early modern world, everyone in the golden hind would have been lying on them. It was, as I've said before, a difficult time. Eventually, a messenger arrived, and I ask you to imagine the excitement and indeed terror among the ship's complement as Drake accepted the letter and no doubt retired to his cabin with the messenger to read it and hear what he had to add. It seemed to be good news, or at least encouraging news, or at least not terrible news. The Queen told Drake not to fret, and to come and see her with samples of his voyage. Drake took maps and notebooks, and the two of them, the Queen and Drake, spent six hours together. The way Elizabeth reacted subsequently rather suggests that all the excitement and wonder of it won her round too. But even at this stage, the deal was not finally sorted. Drake was told to extract something for himself, but bring the rest to London to be registered at the Tower. Even yet, it might therefore be handed back, though in true Elizabethan fashion, the Queen would make jolly sure not all of it was registered. Elizabeth played with the Spanish ambassador quite outrageously, mercilessly and unforgivably refusing to see him for long periods, denying multiple charges, some of which, it has to be said, were demonstrably untrue, some of it demonstrably true. She goaded Philip with a stick, ostentatiously placing three stolen emeralds in her crown, for example, for the ambassador to see. Meanwhile, she allowed Drake to take at least £24,000 from the treasure deposited at the tower for himself and his crew, probably more. The total amount taken is difficult to know, but it could have reached £600,000, over twice the annual revenue of the Crown. 
whatever the figure, it was a massive windfall, and time was proved that Elizabeth had no intention of looking at windfall in the mouth. She sensed the public mood too, and Drake, the yeoman's son, now became a highly visible item at court, patronised and praised by the Queen as he reportedly spent money like water to cut the requisite dash for a newly found celebrity. The Queen shows extraordinary favour to Drake and never fails to speak to him when she goes out in public, conversing with him for a long time. She says she will knight him on the day she goes to see his ship. She has ordered the ship itself to be brought ashore and placed in her arsenal near Greenwich as a curiosity. Leicester and Walsingham were similarly enthusiastic, but Burley and Sussex were not. Burley refused a gift from Drake on the grounds that he did not know how his conscience would allow him to accept a present from Drake, who had stolen all he had. It has to be said that Drake was not gracious, lapping it all up, basking in the Queen's favour. And actually, if you've seen Rick Mail as Flashman in Blackadder 2, that might give you an impression of what Drake was like. He was a public hero, fated by ordinary folk wherever he went, and many of the grandees at court hated it all, especially coming from such a commoner. So there's a story that in 1582, Drake was at a party, holding forth, when the Earl of Sussex suggested rather mouldily that it was hardly a great feat to capture an unarmed treasure ship. For sure, answered Drake, he was as ready to make war upon the King of Spain himself. He probably wasn't kidding either. On April the 1st, 1581, Drake had brought the Golden Hind to Deptford to show the Queen. All London turned out in force to see the spectacle, in such numbers that they caused the collapse of a bridge that duly therefore deposited a hundred people in the Thames mud. That evening, at a magnificent feast, Elizabeth knighted the preacher's son, and such a rise was so rare it's not surprising if it went to Drake's head. And indeed his fame and notoriety was European-wide, with Drake sitting for numerous portraits to spread his fame still further. He was for England a Protestant hero. Little old England had taken on the beast and stolen a march on her. She had arrived. His voyage of 36,000 miles had dwarfed those of Vasco da Gama and Columbus and two of Magellan's three circumnavigations while the care he'd taken of his men meant he'd lost none of them to scurvy, for example, a pretty rare achievement, cry Harry, and all of that. Having said that, Drake had taken advantage of an empire unaware of its weakness, and Philip saw to it that his empire would not be so vulnerable again. The experiences of Richard Hawkins and Cavendish would be very different in the 80s and 90s, leading to nothing but defeat for them. Okay, so I said three episodes. That leaves us one more to cover all the rest. Frobisher, Gilbert, Raleigh and so on. Because as Drake himself wrote to Walshingham before the Armada, there must be a beginning of any great matter, but the continuing unto the end until it be thoroughly finished yields the true glory. And so the true glory awaits you, Mehartis, in three weeks' time, and the true glory of the completer finisher. Meanwhile, I have a treat for you next week, which is a guest episode from Ben Jacobs. 
Ben is one of my favourite purveyors of fine podcastery, Wittenberg to Westphalia. The podcast is many years old and is not at Wittenberg yet, it has to be said, but as ever with these things, the journey is every bit as good as the arrival. Next week then, Ben will talk to us about one of the great stories of early modern Europe, warfare and the impact it had on the development of the nation-state. If the speech of podcasting is silver, then the week after I have gold in store for you, namely, I have a week off. However, don't forget to sign up for membership of the History of England. This week, for example, we have an episode on John Clare, the poet, who found his poems in the field and just wrote them down, and who gives us an insight into the real impact of enclosure and agricultural change. And then it's back to the story of Margaret Beaufort. And of course, there's a library of over 75 hours of podcasts available for you. So sign up, sign up at thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member. Have fun then, everyone. See you soon and good luck. <laughs>